Welcome to Chosen Conversations. We're a group of friends that gather to discuss the episodes in the Chosen series and what they mean to us and how they teach us about who Jesus is. And today we're going to start off by discussing a very important scene in The Chosen, focusing on Jesus meeting the woman at the well. This is a very popular story that all of us have read in the Bible, and The Chosen brings this to life and gives us a context to understand what may have happened in this encounter of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. So I'm going to start off by explaining a little bit about what happens in this scene, and then we're going to go into who was the woman at the well and what does this mean um, to us. So in this scene, um, Jesus comes to the well. He's traveling through Samaria with his followers, and they didn't have to go through Samaria, but Jesus chose to, and I believe it was partially due to his encounter and wanting to meet the woman at the well. So in this scene, we see Jesus meeting this woman. She's at the well by herself in the middle of the day, and the reason she does this is she's not seen as... um, a great member of society. She's kind of a reject and outcast. And in a minute, we're going to discuss why that is. Um, But in this scene, Jesus meets this woman and he basically explains to her that he's thirsty. He'd like a drink. But in the end, he explains, actually, I can offer you more than water. I can offer you living water. Um, And what that means for this woman at the well and what that means for us, we're going to discuss today. Um, So As we get started with this scene, um, John Mark is going to intro us into who is the woman at the well, what is her background, maybe why she was rejected, and why Jesus chose to meet her and reveal himself to her as the Messiah. Yes, thanks, Haley. This is a really complicated story. We don't know a lot from the biblical text. We know that she's isolated. We know that she's had five husbands, and the one she's with now is not her husband. Uh, we know that, that she's ostracized in some way about that. But the, but the intricacies of the story are really difficult to discern. For example, is this woman kind of a, an immoral woman, kind of a in-your-face God, I'm just going to do what I want, I'll get another husband if I want one? Or is this woman trapped in some way? And I think the Chosen does a fairly decent job of picturing her as trapped. She's in a culture that doesn't give women the right to divorce. She's in a culture where women need to be connected to a man in order to have some support, in order to to actually live in that culture. And so she gets cast aside or cast around and she has to find a place. And that might be why she has five husbands, but the one she's not with now is, her, is not her husband. And in, in way the, the way the Chosen does this, I think, is pretty delicate because it's a lot of supposition. We don't know for sure. I don't think she's this overt, immoral, kind of ungodly type person. I think she's more what the Chosen depicts as a woman who, in her first marriage, was abused. And as an abused woman, she felt shame in receiving the love of her second husband. And so that was not something that she could feel good about. And so she felt herself unworthy. And so she left that husband. Or, And you can just see kind of the snowball. It's kind of a cultural trap in the ancient world where women do not have an independence. They don't have their own agency in the culture. So that picture, I think, helps us because now 
she's a little, shall we say, stilted. She's a little, uh, she's an abused woman. She is um, trying to figure her way in the world and nobody is really receiving her or no one is showing her any grace or mercy. And so when she encounters Jesus at the well, who is a Jew, yeah, she's kind of, yeah, you're a Jew. You're, why are you talking to me? You're not, even, you don't, you're not even supposed to talk to me. You know, if you think you have, you want some water, get your own water kind of thing. It's that kind of um, uh, resistance to mercy, resistance to grace, resistance to that relationship. And Jesus has to kind of poke at her to, to open her up to slowly open her eyes. First, he's a prophet, and then he's the Messiah. And she embraces that. And you can see the kind of 180-degree turn. She totally turned around. She was this resistant, harmed, abused, wounded person at the well talking to Jesus. And then she becomes enthralled and thrilled and excited and said, I've got to tell everybody about this. Not So that kind of change is what the Jesus story is all about, right? Jesus coming into a world, coming into a context where people are downtrodden, marginalized, wounded, abused. All they can see is the darkness in life, no hope. And Jesus enters her life and turns her life into a, a kind of hopefulness and a joy and an excitement. David, how did you see that? What did you see in that story? Yeah, I love what you're saying. And one of the things, uh, as you're wrapping that up, one of the things I want to point out is that uh, who was there first, right? Uh, we just talked that Jesus actually decided to go through that road and be sitting at that well waiting for her. That just means Jesus was there first. He was waiting for her, just like he today is waiting for us. Maybe you haven't found him. Maybe you found him a long time ago, and now you're lost, and and you need to go back to him. And and the message here is that he's always there. He loves us first, and that's why we love others. And we just gotta we just gotta see it from that point of perspective how Jesus was there first uh, to offer her love and to offer her redemption. Uh, from a world that she was not looked like a decent person. Another thing is what you were saying about uh, she starts by calling him a Jew, and then she goes to calling him a prophet, and then she says, he's the Messiah, you're the Messiah. And and one of the things I want to point out is how Jesus teaches us in this moment how we shouldn't take offense to other comments. She starts by saying, oh, you're a Jew. Like, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're one of those, right? And what does he what does he do? He stays calm. He continues the conversation. He doesn't act out. He doesn't start yelling and saying, "Oh, yeah, yeah, what, whatever," right? No, he is Jesus, and that's just a good example for us to be that way. Then she says, "You're a prophet." Oh, you're a prophet. When he reveals some things to her, and then she goes out saying, "You're the Messiah." I'm gonna tell everyone. So. One perspective is see Jesus' attitude towards this, and another perspective is also seeing her attitude towards him. Once she finds Jesus and realizes who she is, like you're saying, she changed. And change involves acting upon what you've learned, upon what you believe, and going out there, like she's saying, that 
you're, you're the Christ. I, I'm going to go out there and tell everyone because that's who you are and you found me. And at first I called you a Jew because I didn't know who you were. I didn't care about who you were. Then I called you a prophet because you were showing me some things. And now I know you're Jesus, the Messiah. So I've learned and now I'm going out there and, and she's the reason why they go into town and she's the one calling all these people and making all this noise in town. So I think that's a good connection going from the end of season one at the well into season two in Samaria because she's the one making all the noise about Jesus and, and getting, gathering all these crowds around him. So Stan, if there's anything else you want to add or move on to the Samar Samaria town. Well, I really like what you said there, David. Uh, you, you made me smile thinking about, you know, John Mark laying out the idea of her being possibly uh, used up. You know, women, unfortunately, were, were more like property. And so if there was, there's all kinds of, you know, theories out there, of course. I mean, there's people who postulate things like she was barren and couldn't have children. And so therefore she was tossed off from one man to the next. Um, they didn't know the medical information we know about that really being a lot to do with the male instead of the female. They made the assumption it was the female. Uh, I don't know. We don't have any way of saying that's true or not, but it does seem, I agree with John Mark, it does seem like she's not this just rebel, I'll do whatever I want to do. She's looking for the Messiah, as you've said, and she starts hearing things that Jesus says, and she does a 180 right there in, in Scripture and in the chosen episode. She goes from someone who is hiding from other people to being the cheerleader to go get those people because she's so excited for them to come meet Jesus. And she she says, I'm going to go tell everyone. And Jesus says, I was kind of hoping you would. So it's just a, an evangelistic moment, you know, where she's actually the one that is carrying the good news to the to the people. And instead of her being somebody that they ignore, apparently, they're like, well, let's go see. You know, if, if she's coming and saying this, we'll go out there and take a look. So it's almost like her redemption of value goes from where she was when she went to the well to who she's proclaiming when she leaves the well and then brings them back to her, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to remember that she is really the first public convert. Uh, we've had some private occasions, right, with Eden and her mother, her mother and so on. But this is the first public, the first time that Jesus actually sends somebody off to tell others that I am the Messiah. Uh, and remember, Peter comes back and says, you mean we could do that now? We, we can talk now. We can tell people now, right? He gets all fired up about that. So this, I think it's really significant that the first public convert is a woman and is a Samaritan and that she becomes the first evangelist, you might say. The first evangelist. The first evangelist is a woman. And I think that's a, that's pretty startling, uh, especially the woman who who had five husbands, but now the one she lives with is not her husband. Now, remember, um, her her current husband will not give her a bill of divorce, right? He burned it in the fire because he says, I don't let go of my property easily. That gave you a sense of what her status was. And so the one who was property becomes the one who bears the good news to the city of Samaria. And choosing Samaria becomes then this 
crisis, uh, this um, anomaly, this, why Samaria? I mean, why are you going to Samaria? Shouldn't this be for the people of God first? Why don't we go to Jerusalem first? You're going to Samaria before you go to Jerusalem? To the disciples, that doesn't make any sense, does it, Stan? No, sir, it doesn't. Um, and actually, it kind of carries a theme over that the Samaritan theme, this this disgust for these people, unfortunately, uh, is is got continuity to the rest of the episode. Because once we leave this scene uh, where she's going to tell everyone, we then are introduced to what will become known to us as the Sons of Thunder concept for James and John. They're still in Samaria. And they go, uh, they go into just kind of a in-between state. They're traveling from one place to the other. The way the Chosen uh, depicts it is it's just, a, it's just like a public path, a public road that happens to be dirt. And um, so some Samaritans see them, and they say some derogatory things to them. Um, they end up spitting towards their direction, and James and John are ready to fight. I mean, they are highly offended. And they think maybe, I'm thinking that somebody on here will have an opinion, Haley or David, uh, maybe they're thinking they're taking up for Jesus a little bit, but I think a lot of it is just their egos themselves uh, because they just do not like the Samaritan people uh, at all. Exactly, Stan. And we see this um, in our world today. You know, you're either a friend or you're an enemy. And what, once someone crosses you or hurts your feelings or offends you, you just want nothing to do with them, and, and you, your instinct as a human is to fight back and, and defend, defend yourself. This is a great example of loving your enemies, turning the other cheek um, when someone does say something harmful to you, and just exemplifying Jesus's character. Jesus, in this scene as well, did not um, get angry, did not react, simply was kind in that moment, and that's why I love this scene. And it does show us that no matter who you are, Jesus is there for you. You can be a follower of Jesus. And like you, yeah, sorry, sorry. Like you said, he he is kind, but he does have to hold them back. Right. Um. They they are ready to take take action physically, and he kind of says, "Whoa, guys, hang on," you know. And uh, they they get so so adamant and so animated that by the time the 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 confrontation has died down and it's kind of over. They turn to Jesus and make this just kind of unbelievable statement or or question. They say, you know, do you want us to call down fire on them? So it goes from a physical desire to actually fight to really wanting to destroy them, to, to do away with them completely, which is a big escalation, it seems. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like a Sodom and Gomorrah escalation, right? Put some fire on these boys. I mean, they just treated us in such a negative way. I mean, they showed disrespect to you. You know, you are the Messiah. You're, you're the Son of God, and they have disrespected you. But I think you're right, Stan, that, it, that it's probably more an expression, not so much of defending Jesus as it is an expression of their hatred for the Samaritans. They just don't have any need or desire to know a Samaritan. In fact, earlier, they'd never met a Samaritan. Or 
James and John are walking through the city, and and he's, I think it's James that says, you know what the problem with Samaria is? And his response was, it's got Samaritans. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. Uh, these are just not people we want to associate with. We don't want to have anything to do with them. So when you have that kind of attitude toward a person, that they are they are outsiders, that they are non-persons, that they are traitors or... or um, people who are the enemy and you dehumanize them yeah it's easy to call fire down because they're not human anymore Mm -hmm. and i think that that's that's kind of what's being expressed in that kind of situation Mm -hmm. for them why jesus calls them the sons of thunder yeah and i would i would be interested to be on your your take on that they do bring they do bring in a little bit of humor right jesus says fire really you know kind of like come on guys you lost your heads you kind of went you kind of went crazy and they (laughs) chuckle but then we still have a samaritan thread going on because then we get a scene where jesus sends james and john out to do a task which is to plow a field and we see the rudimentary tools that they use to plow with, which is a lot of physical labor. And so they make a lot of assumptions that they must have been chosen for their strength or because they're dependable or because Jesus knows they'll do it right or whatever, but they don't know who they're working for. And when they find out, David, they're almost as angry um, as any time we've seen them angry up to that point. And and this reoccurring theme with the Sons of Thunder just uh, gives me hope. Because one day I may be, you know, saying, you got to bring down fire to these people. God, they don't know how to drive. What's going on here? <laughs> and, and the other day, then the next day, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring on the field. I'm doing his will. I'm, I'm doing his work. And then yet the next day, someone makes me mad again, right? So it gives me hope of, of the struggle that's real in our lives. And that's just normal living, how we, we do love Jesus. Uh, we're striving to be like Jesus, but... In the end, we're going to fall short, and and it gives me hopes that Jesus can use us even even despite our deficiencies. You know, mm. yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying there, David. That's that's really good because we we do have that attitude in our own hearts at times, and especially when it's about particular groups of people that we have a certain we feel a certain disgust for, or we have no understanding of them. Uh, and that can range from immigrants to, you know, people we think of as immoral and flouting their immorality. And we just want to rain fire on them. And Jesus, I like I like what you said, Stan, about, yeah, fuego? You know, really? Really? You want, you want fuego? You want, you, want to, you want to burn these people up? Is that that's your response? Wow. Is that why I chose you to go around, pick people to burn up? You know, no, it's not why you're here. You're, you know, you're other reason. You're all over something. You just made me think of um, is that you know you've heard it said, "Thou shall not kill," but if you hate one, then you've committed murder in your heart. And if you're calling fire down on somebody, or you're saying that they're expendable or they're not worth uh, being alive, then that is that that concept of murder in your heart or in your mind, even though they didn't actually physically do it. So, uh, wow, you know, that's, uh, that's a pretty, 
vivid example right there. I mean, I don't think, David, we do it for people who can't drive, hopefully, but we say the same thing. Uh, we don't really mean we want them to cease living because they not, they're not good drivers, but um, oftentimes when we don't know someone, or as John Mark's saying, we already have somebody categorized as a, as a people group we don't like, we can say things like that that are hateful and mean and not even realize what we're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, what's the difference between saying fire and go to hell? It just puts it into perspective because, and it teaches us, you know, Jesus wants us to exemplify grace because how often in our initial reaction do we say things when someone cuts us off in traffic or uh, we have a disagreement at work or uh, any any situation in life, we just basically say, man, I, I really don't like that person. And you you have these ill feelings toward them, but at the end of the day, is anything they could ever do to you, you know, does that out justify the grace that Jesus has showed us? It's just a really good example of remembering that, like we have to be forgiving and accepting of others because of what Jesus has done for us. And uh, I noticed thing that you mentioned that uh, Fotina was the first uh, evangelist, right? And she was not a Jew. She was married five times. She did not look according i mean the, the scene shows that she didn't dress like everyone else she looked sweaty kind of dirty and you know and then and then the question is how did jesus receive her at, at the well mm-hmm. and then the question to us is how do we receive people that don't look like us that don't have our same skin color that don't have our same haircut that don't dress like us and they show up to our synagogue our buildings our our worship service and then what and how how many times our actions can be turning someone around that could become that first evangelist that we need to grow the church in our community to spread the word. How many times we're not we're not open-hearted like Jesus was in that moment to foreigners, people that don't look like you, that don't dress like you. And so it's a call to action on us. Well, and I just keep going back to that uh, of how how that can also I mean be applicable today in how we act towards others. Yeah, I was thinking about the contrast. Uh, between the fire moment and the moment at Melek's house. Remember, they, they, they discover that they plowed this field not for people who were traveling through as kind of a kindness to offer people food as they were traveling through, but they found out that this was a Samaritan house owner, you know, this Samaritan field owner who they plowed this for, and they put all that sweat in. They're pretty upset about that. They, it's your feeling, you know, are you the owner? You know, if I'd known that, it's kind of like you get that feeling. If I'd known that, I would have done that for you. Um, but the, but the contrast between the, the fire breathing of the sons of thunder and the way Jesus treats Melek. Jesus doesn't burn Melek up, right? And Melek tells a story about his own life where he was um, a thief and attacked a person on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, stole his horse, beat up this guy, maybe left him for dead. He's not sure if he's dead or alive. And he falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And what is, I mean, I imagine the sons of thunders, you know, they're sitting back there listening to this story going, why are we here? <laughs> you know, what are we doing here? We should bring fire on these people. You know, these guys can't drop. Yeah, that's right. And then Jesus is kind of, you know, 
Tell me your story. I want to hear your story. And there's grace for those who tell their story. The woman at the well tells her story. There's grace. The Melek tells his story. There's grace. There's not fire. There's grace. And I think that's, that is a teaching moment for the sons of thunder. That fire is not the proper response. A gracious reception and redemption and healing of that broken leg. That's the response of Jesus. Yeah, you you really did something there. I hope this is all right. I I think one of the things the chosen does to me is it it makes uh, interleafing of scripture happen that I don't know that my brain has put together before, because it's based on searching for I don't know if that was really you know Melik. Uh, there's no there's no biblical proof that that happened, but it doesn't matter because. What happens is my mind goes to other places. Jesus says things like, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing uh, when, they're, when they're murdering him. Or the thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. Forgiven, you know, and what do we do? Our heads blow up and go, wait a minute, had he been baptized? Did he get down off the cross and didn't go get baptized? Did he, did he do all the things he's supposed to do? And so to John Mark's point, my mind goes to that scene that they invented uh, if you if you watch it carefully, Jesus just lays his hand on Melek that evening, and it's the next morning after Jesus and the disciples have left that Melek is getting out of bed and realizes when his feet hit the floor that Jesus has healed him through that touch the night before. And it's like what John Mark is saying, none of us deserve the love that he extends to us and the compassion and the mercy and the understanding that even if we haven't beaten up a man on the side of the road, we're just as disqualified as the guy who has. And what he heals us of, he heals them of their deficiencies as well. So even to the point of saying, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing when they're killing him. So that would be the ultimate enemy right in your face, I would think. So hopefully that makes sense to you guys. It, it really makes sense to me. So hopefully I articulated that okay. And as a practical approach, it also brings it back to, you know, I mentioned how we, sometimes we don't welcome others that don't look like us, but also how, how are we treating them outside of our worship gatherings? What are we doing in our daily lives? You know, like Sons of Thunder said, if I had known, I wouldn't have done it. Well, we don't even do it. So we don't even do it. Know it or not know, we don't do it to begin with, right? So maybe that's a practical approach for us today on what are we doing, not only in welcoming, but in actually doing things for others that are, don't look like us. Well, that, that was, I guess what I was kind of trying to say is, are we blocking others that are not like us from Jesus? When he would heal them, just like he heals us, we don't have the right to block somebody who sinned differently from us, looks different from us, talks different from us, or doesn't go along with our particular Christian tradition dogma or whatever. Um, right. and, and we should not, we should not be a stumbling block to others to get to him. Or someone that we might think is not worthy of him. Because you, mm. you see, you know, you see the disciples um, just questioning, you know, why, why do you care about the Samaritans? And you see even um, Peter just not even wanting Matthew to be a follower. And it's, it goes back to it's not our decision. And Jesus accepts everyone. It's just a great model for us to follow. It is. A, it's a powerful scene uh, when you take all that into account. It's not a scene that's in the Bible. 
but it is a scene created out of the stuff of the Bible, out of the stuff of the story of Jesus. It's kind of a construct of different theological themes and parables coming together in this moment where Jesus brings his disciples to sit at table with a Samaritan family in their house. And that, that says a lot. Who did Jesus eat with? He ate with Samaritans, and he invited them into the kingdom of God as well. Go read Torah. Go attend the synagogue. Show yourself to God. Seek God, and God will find you. And so that redemptive actions on the part of Jesus are not only for that person, but they're also to teach his disciples, this is our business. This is our kingdom agenda. Don't get caught up in your pettiness and in your prejudices and your biases. Embrace the kingdom of God. Or as he said about calling a Matthew, get used to different, right? Get used to different. Now, maybe maybe in conclusion, I, I didn't ask you all about this, um, but I think the humor is one of the, the striking elements of, of the whole series. I mean, the humor, Jesus's humor. Uh, remember, they're going into the house where they're going to stay overnight in, in the city, uh, in, in the rich man's house. And and Fotina says, you know, there's, or I don't remember, maybe it was the host who said, well, you know, there's one room where the grandmother is a, is a ghost there, haunting, the one, one room is haunted. And Jesus says, ooh, I want that one. Uh, and, and Andrew says, not me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like Jesus and Andrew are... Uh, the humorous of the group. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that that dimension, to see the humor of Jesus. But even at Melech's house, you know, after Melech has described how he broke his leg and because he was, he was in the aftermath of having robbed someone and beat them up. And, and Jesus says, well, I guess we better get back to the city. But, uh, you know, we better get going. Somebody might rob us and attack us. <laughs> And then he said something like, too too soon? Yeah, he, just, he didn't get the big laugh, so he said, hmm, maybe too soon? <laughs> that, that kind of scenes are just wonderful. I mean, I, I just love the humor that is present. I, I agree, and I think somebody ought to call Dallas Jenkins and give John Mark's uh, new T-shirt slogan, the stuff of the Bible. We need we need that. That's that's great. Yeah. Uh, Sisters, it's been good to be with you tonight, and uh, thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing uh, around the table here. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all.